0: Whether you call it Mardi Gras or Carnival, the revelry before Ash Wednesday is a massive party in many parts of the world. Coming up, we'll hear how they celebrate it in Venice.
1: There's gorgeous costumes, full regala, palace parties. It's the greatest people-watching period of the year.
0: While in Germany, the street party scene
2: depends on where you live. Carnival in Protestant regions is boring or non-existent because only the Catholics know how to do it. Get a taste of the best things to eat in Spain. Spain produces
3: over 40% of the world's olive oil, and that's why it's a part of our everyday diet
0: there. And hear about a hit reality show on Norwegian TV where all the contestants are Americans. The grand prize is a reunion with their distant relatives in the old country.
4: I mean, it was just one of the best days of my life. We got to have a, a family reunion, a big picnic together, and sit down and share stories.
0: The party starts in just a minute. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The festivities are legendary in New Orleans and Rio, but the origins of Mardi Gras and the carnival street parties go deep into medieval Europe. Coming up, we'll hear how people in Venice have been celebrating since the 13th century and the different ways the faithful in Germany's Rhineland get to blow off some bacchanalian steam before the fasting days of Lent. A little later in the hour, we'll also meet the producer of a popular reality TV show in Norway, where the contestants are Americans searching for their old country roots. But it wouldn't be much of a party without something delicious to eat. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves with a taste of the local specialties you can enjoy in Spain. We're joined now by Nigel Mural. He's an American who's been guiding visitors around Madrid for a dozen years, and tour guide Javier Menor, who was born and raised in Madrid. Javier, how do you enjoy helping skittish Americans get acquainted with the foods you enjoy most in Spain?
5: Break barriers. Show them that there is a whole variety of things. Show them what the jamón means for this country. The jamón. Because for me,
0: there's a psychological thing. When I get to Spain, I'm going to a lot of countries, I'm not there until my teeth break through a crusty piece of bread and hit the jamón.
5: I've got a line there. Saudi Arabia might have oil. South Africa might have diamonds. But Spain has got on <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have to mention, if you're a budget traveler, you go into a bar or uh, any sort of a restaurant and you have different kinds of jamón and you might think, ham is ham. Is
5: ham oh, ham? No, no ham is <laughs> oh, no, not no. ham. Tell me uh, the importance of spending a little extra money for your hamon. I say you can try them all. You can have a fairly cheap ham for a sandwich. And you should try at least once in your lifetime the really high end ham. Mm-hmm. And what would that be? Iberico de Bellota, which Hi. talks about the breeze and the, um, the diet. The diet. Mm-hmm. The diet of the pig. Uh huh. That actually matters? Yeah, because Bellota is the acorn. Ah, okay. So this is the, the Iberico, Iberico the... Iberian. Exactly.
0: Iberian acorn fed pig pig yeah, Exactly. So the, the, the diet is crucial. And if if I blindfolded you and I gave mm-hmm. and I, and I had a five dollar plate of jamon serrano, right. and a twelve dollar plate of jamon ibérico, more like a twenty dollar plate. Is that right? <laughs> <or not? laughs> yeah. Twenty dollar plate of jamon ibérico. And uh, you you took one delicately with your fingers and put it in. Would it be so obvious to you? What, what, Absolutely. How would, you, how would it be different? The main difference is that
3: there is a content of oleic acid that's present in the jamon ibérico de bellota, the Iberian ham, that comes from the consumption. Of acorns. Really? This allows the fat to be dispersed also between, through the muscles because the pigs are yeah. roaming free. And when you put it in your mouth, the sensation is that it sort of melts onto your tongue. It is. When the fat warms up.
5: If I'm blindfolded, I probably don't have to taste it just by the touch. Yeah. By the touch. Absolutely. That's yeah, a good because point. Because the good ham is sweating. Right. Yes. Right. And just the smell, oh my gosh. And even the feel of it on your, on and your then, lips. And then true. the feel is totally. Now, a different experience. Now, yes. part
0: of we have these ham hocks that are on a, like a vice grips, right? And this is a beautiful thing. And uh,
5: how you cut the ham, does this matter? Cheap ham? Yeah. You slice it with uh, all kinds of techniques, machines. Right. But good ham, it has to be hand-sliced, special knife, sharp, thin slices. Done with love and th- almost... Yeah, actually, actual, actual table we sometimes. have championships. Really? Of slicing ham. <laughs> we have champions. <sighs> it would
0: probably be terrible to have a nice harmonivirico improperly sliced.
5: Yeah, but that happens a lot because it's not uncommon at all to walk into somebody's kitchen and see a ham right there on the counter. Yeah. A lot of families have a ham at yeah. all times in the kitchen.
0: That's a beautiful thing, I would imagine. Nigel, we complement this in Spanish uh, cuisine with olive oil. How important is olive oil to Spanish cuisine?
3: Well, To give you just one statistic, Spain produces over 40% of the world's olive oil, and that's why it's a part of our everyday diet there. In fact, the high consumption of olive oil is one of the reasons why Spaniards have such low levels of cholesterol-related diseases Mm. because of the high content of the monounsaturated fats.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're eating in Spain right now with Nigel Morel and Javier Menor guys, I'd like to talk about the, the regional specialty. So I'm just going to name a region. and If you could tell me what a traveler should really know about to delve into that aspect, that mm-hmm. dimension of the culture. Andalusia, that's the southern part of Spain. Granada, Sevilla, Córdoba.
5: Javier? If you tell me Andalusia, I'm going to say uh, salmorejo, mm. which is a gazpacho with a couple more ingredients like ham and egg. So we know gazpacho, this would be sort of a... a, a creamier, it's a thicker, thicker gazpacho. Thicker gazpacho. A cold, soup, a cold
0: vegetable soup with some ham. And uh, fried fish. Fried fish. All right. Nigel, when do you think of Andalusia, what do you think of from a food I point th- of view? Well, I think of
3: sherry wine <laughs> right mm-hmm. off the top of my head, which goes with the foods that Javier was just talking about. Really? Um, sherry wine. Jerez,
0: in, from a town called Jerez. Jerez exactly. In exactly, Andalusia. Which yeah. is
3: where the name sherry comes from, because the old Arabic name was sherez. Mm. And then, of course, over time, that's become sherry. And sherry is what many Andalusians drink with fried food, such as the fried fish. And this
0: is a velvety sweet wine, generally,
3: isn't it? No, it's not a sweet wine. It's that's the biggest misconception. Really? Okay. Sorry. Real sherry is absolutely Dry. Dry. And only after it's been sweetened with another dessert wine, whether it's Pedro Jiménez or Moscatel, then it becomes a sweetened dessert sherry in that sense. But true sherry is, is
0: dry. Okay, so if I go into a bar, that, that's a very important ability for a tourist to be able to go into a bar and be over the preconception, like I was just right. there, because I just thought of sherry as like port. Right. And then to know that that's a good option. Right. And you can see it in casks.
3: And there's a bar in Madrid that's actually famous for just serving only sherry out of the cask.
0: Speaking of Madrid, is that in Castilla? Madrid Leon. is
3: its own city-state, but okay. it is traditionally, historically, a part of exactly. La Mancha. It's, they call it pueblo manchego, which okay. is like a village this, of La Mancha.
0: This is the center of Spain. Exactly. How does that relate to uh, Leon and Castile? Well, Castile Leon is
3: the comunidad autonomous communities, which are almost like states. It's mm-hmm. just north of Madrid. Okay. This is old Castile, and then new Castile is south of Madrid. Okay. Which so is that Castilla La Mancha, and it's it's called Castile. But it's,
5: this is just the last thirty years right. after. Francos and democracy, we split the country in seventeen states, but historically Madrid is part of Castilla. Right, right. Now
0: when you think of food in this part of Spain, Javier, what do you think?
5: Roasted. Suckling pig, roasted lamb, and we have a, a dish with the name of Madrid in it, which is cocido madrileño.
0: What is cocido?
5: It's better for the winter, stew. Stew, okay, Stew. yeah, that's right. I've, I've Made seen with that. chickpeas, veggies, bones, meat, chicken all together, cooked for hours. But when I'm talking to Spaniards,
0: the cochineal
5: asado is mm. always something that just, I, I can just see the
0: happiness. With the <laughs> it's a mass. This is baby pig or baby lamb that only was drinking its mother's milk.
5: That's and, why in English it's called a suckling pig. Had okay. nothing to eat but mama's milk. Very tender. 21 days old. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you, c- you can imagine if it is tender. Restaurants always in the uh, wood oven, so you get all the flavors and tastes. What's the famous um, restaurant just off the
0: Plaza Mayor where Hemingway ate?
5: In Madrid, the um Boteen, 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 Boteen. Right. So If you go into Botin,
0: right. there must be like 80 little pigs spread out <laughs> on the plates, ready to go <laughs> right. into the That's cooker.
5: True. If you ever go to Botin, which is in Madrid, it is uh, certified as the oldest restaurant in the world by, by the Guinness mm-hmm. Book of Records. Right. Ask the manager to please see the kitchen. Yes. Excuse me, do you mind if I go into the kitchen? I want to see the oven. And they will be glad to show you that. And you will see that huge, massive piece of concrete, which is the base for the oven. You can see how it's worn out by hundreds, literally hundreds of years of sliding in and out the pole to... Take the, the, roast, pigs the The oldest restaurant in the world with the youngest pigs going in <laughs> and out true. constantly, and
0: that is so tender. What about Asturias? Where is that,
5: Javier? Asturias is up in northern Spain. The food up there, I can think of two things. A very strong cheese called a cabrales. This is like a Roquefort, right? Or has Roquefort, a, blue cheese. Sort of even, stronger. Blue,
0: even stronger. Even okay.
5: stronger than blue cheese. It's really strong, and it is wrapped in the fig leaves. Right. The second dish from Asturias is the fabada. What is fabada? Is
0: beans, stewed ah, with beans. Like fab? is that like fava beans? Like fava beans. beans. okay. Madrid guides Javier Menor and Nigel Mural are sharing their love of jamón and the other local specialties you can enjoy in Spain with us now on Travel with Rick Steves. When I'm in Spain, I love the manchego cheese. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nigel, where is that from? Manchego cheese, what a
3: lot of people mistake is that manchego is just an adjective for anything from la mancha. And so, of course, it refers specifically to uh, oh, so sheep's that's cheese. Oh, that means
0: la mancha. Exactly. Ah, so okay. a
3: person can be manchego, like ah. a man can be manchego in that sense. And this okay. refers to a famous sheep's cheese.
0: Now, we've been talking about Spain, and Basque is a distinct region of Spain with proud people who are mm-hmm. ethnically Basque, not Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's famous for its cuisine. Right. Uh, Nigel, in a nutshell, mm-hmm. what is it about
3: Basque cuisine? Basque Cuisine has uh, really become famous in the last 30, 40 years because they took uh, their model from the Nouvelle Cuisine, coming up in France in the 1970s, Hmm. specifically from a Basque chef named Juan Maria Arthac. And Arthac is the one responsible for starting the new Basque Cuisine. And this was moving away from the traditional heavy ingredients and using really lighter ingredients, the influence of the mari Montaña, which is the sea and the mountains, just creating what have become incredibly diverse and innovative dishes.
0: You know, that explains it, because I've gone to San Sebastian, right. famous for its tapas, right. and they've got gourmet tapas, nouveau cuisine, with local dishes, Both and it's ingredients.
5: light and fun and right. just gorgeous. I have to say, only San Sebastian, that only city in northern Spain, Basque Country, they have four restaurants with three mm-hmm. Michelin, Michelin stars. stars. Oh, is true. that right? So San only
0: Sebastian has San more Sebastian. three-star Michelin restaurants? Four. It's got more than any of the other cities. Combined. Uh, combined. Basically. San Sebastian. So when you go to San Sebastian, that's the big city in Spanish Basque Country, come with an appetite. Absolutely.
5: And uh, a thick wallet. <laughs> and a, and <laughs>
0: a thick wallet. And the final region I want to talk about is Galicia, and that's the northwest of Spain. Galicia is uh, Celtic. It's sort
5: of like related to Ireland a little bit. How is
0: the cuisine, Javier, in
5: Galicia? There are topics we cannot uh, run away from. And Galicia, for all Spaniards, means uh, seafood. Okay. And octopus.
0: Yes. Octopus. Yes.
5: I see a big smile. What is it about Galician octopus? Do you like mm, it? I love it. <laughs> Why? I don't know. It's something so traditional, especially when you walk there, for example. Imagine. You, they, they cut it. They pull it out. This is what's cool in the market. They pull it out of a big
0: cauldron of steaming water, and then they've got these scissors, and it's just snip, snip, snip onto a wooden plate. Wooden plate and, and potatoes. And they put some spices on it, and then you get your toothpick. Paprika paprika, and top. I just feel like a little kid and A little eating. bit of
5: olive oil.
0: and little A little bit of olive oil. Yeah.
5: And just That's... imagine you walk the Camino de Santiago, 500 miles, 40 days, and there is this great place, tavern, waiting for you with the octopus and the wine. And the Albarino wine. And exactly. the Albarino wine. Exactly. Life is good. <laughs> Life is great. <laughs> Especially
0: if you know how to eat smartly while you're in Spain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nigel Morel, Javier Menor, thank you so much for helping us better appreciate the impressive cuisine Thanks, Rick. Welcome. Up next, we celebrate Carnival, where traditions go back centuries in Venice and in Germany's Rhineland. And in a bit, we meet the producer of a Norwegian TV show that features American contestants as they learn about the country their grandparents left behind. It's travel with Rick Steves. There's a unique combination of heaven and hell in the story behind the Carnival and Mardi Gras celebrations that invigorate many communities in the Old World and the New this time of year. One of the most elegant versions of Carnival is found in Venice. Its origins are believed to date to a 12th-century victory party. And in more recent centuries, the Carnival of Venice has become famous for its ornate masks. For a look at how the Venetians are celebrating, we're joined by local guide Stacy Gaboni. Stacy, Welcome.
1: Grazie, Rick. Buongiorno.
0: Buongiorno. So tell us, uh, what is Carnival in Venice?
1: Carnival is a very big party. I know we like to maybe associate it with uh, Mardi Gras. New Orleans, I think, might Mm -hmm. be our biggest one in the United States. It's that period before Lent where everyone just lets loose. And in carnival, a carnival in Venice is specifically famous. So, so first
0: famous. of all, Lent is when you have to have austerity. You're yes. fasting, giving up things as you prepare for Easter.
1: Be the sort of our hedonistic yes. debauchery so period a, prior a, a to that.
0: needs kind of thing. Okay, Get one it out big of your party. System. Okay. Get it
1: out of your system and then behave yourself.
0: I gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so.
1: I think a carnival has become so well known, the Venetian carnival, Particularly because we are an island where the masks, the idea of using masks to disguise yourself from your neighbors is something sometimes I'd like to actually <laughs> incorporate year-round. It's not like you can walk out your front door to go to work with your coffee mug in hand, get in your car, and maybe you still have your slippers on or something because yeah. your high heels are in the back seat. You don't have that luxury in Venice. You walk out your front door, you run smack into you know, Everybody knows 20 people happening. that you know. And that, I think the... The popularity of the Venetian mask wearing went on and on and on, basically because of that proximity that we have in this particular city. There's a lot of historical references that we could talk about. I guess with but there's also
0: of, just this heritage of this is a time when you had a, originally back in in the 18th c- century. It was yeah, really in the popular, 1700s. Yeah. You have so many constraints on people, mm-hmm. so many classes. I mean, you belong in this strata. You belong in that strata. This during took carnival, away. everybody is every strata. There are Equality. no rules. There is anonymity. You put on that mask, and what happens the in Venice anonymity stays is key. in Venice.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> so today, as travelers, if we come to Venice during Carnival, come uh, with your party shoes on. <laughs> okay. So it's a. I, I would imagine. From a classic carnival point of view, it's become a little bit of just a, perhaps, a frat party. Or and perhaps cliché, maybe, yeah.
1: and some avenues well, it could on, be. On the other
0: hand, it's a colorful and fun time to be in Venice. What's your strategy time. for enjoying carnival in Venice?
1: I think the best strategy would be to embrace the fact that you're going to be in a city uh, of that size on a special holiday. Everywhere you go, you're going to find people dressed up, whether it's not like Halloween costume dressing up. It's elegant. There's gorgeous costumes, full regala, palace parties. It's the greatest people-watching period of the year, perhaps.
0: You're inundated with tourists during this period, but in Venice, is the population going up or down? Down. It's going down. Yes. You weren't people actually living yes. in this pretty difficult place to, to live day in and day there's out.
1: A, there's a new look to the fabric of the local Venetian. Yeah. I, I mean... We're much more multicultural than we were. I think it's sort of like a flux. Once upon a time, it was a very multicultural city back in the day. So,
0: I understand a lot of Asians and a lot of Russians are buying up small businesses. This is all true. And sometimes it's a front force. It's a way to, um, what do you call it, wash your, your illegal money from Russia? Apparently. Yeah, so we'll find that different flavor in Venice. But there still is uh, a substantial community of people who consider themselves true, Venetian.
1: There are true Venetians, and those people have lived generations, generations still living in their family palaces and everything.
0: And do they celebrate carnival, or they just roll their eyes and say, this is a good time to get out of town?
1: I think a lot of them get go skiing.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs>
1: yeah. The Venetians tend to go to the certain beach in the summer and the certain mountain in the winter, right. so they, they sort of stick with their sestiere but back to the carnival and what you could do as a as a tourist during that uh-huh. time is is I would come prepared to participate. I think that's the best way to enjoy it. I'm not going to recommend renting a thousand dollar costume in a thousand euro costume. You in can actually city. do that. Yes, sir. There are you costume can. Shops. There are some famous costume shops. Brilliant, beautiful traditional wear. But you know, you could always make your own at home, or perhaps rent something here. And so, the people with lots it. of
0: money who have the over-the-top parties at home—they're the ones to spend a thousand euros and prance around town with these well, wild casanova private outfits.
1: private boat transport and these oh, palaces. Yeah. The palaces. Back to those families who, for generations, lived in these palaces. You know, it's it's big business to rent out your palace for a private party, and that happens all over the city.
0: Because there are these, like, there's probably a glut of private palaces available for rent.
1: Absolutely. This is also seen with the um, the Biennale that we have these these art and architecture events. But during the carnival, if you get online and you're thinking about coming over to see us and you want to participate and and see the parades of the costumes and the boats that go down and the flying of the angel and whatnot. Then you should maybe invest and in go into one of these private parties. You can buy tickets online. There's a grand range from 150 so, a night to you know 1,500.
0: That's great. So if you want to actually partake and not just wander on the street mm-hmm. and feel like you're all dressed up and taking selfies, yeah, but exactly. actually connect, you could actually get tickets to one of these yeah. uh, fancy palazzo come, balls.
1: Come with your friends. You know, make it a group event. Organize what you think you want to do, and mm-hmm. and I, I think it's. That's a very special way to celebrate.
0: Stacey Gaboni married a local chef 15 years ago when she was an art student in Venice. Now, she shows American visitors around her romantic city. She's leading us through the elegant carnival traditions of Venice right now on Travel with Rick Steves. So, Stacey, generally carnival is before Lent, and yes. Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter. Yes, and we think of Carnival as uh, the, the big Mardi Gras party and, and so on, and that's kind of what we're talking it's about kind of, here. It,
1: it's slightly different, but it's the same same, same period. Of, <laughs> same sort
0: of period and <laughs> the same kind of chant to let the society vent yeah. before mm-hmm. buckling down. If we're a tourist in Venice, just take us on a, a little walk. What events are there going to be in the squares? What might we smell? what might we eat? Mm-hmm. What might we do? There's
1: always an, uh, the comune prints out an agenda of events and festivals and things that they're providing for the city. and you'll be able to find that online each year mm-hmm. to make your plans because obviously the period before Lent changes, it's not always a fixed mm-hmm. a fixed dates. One of the favorite things I like to do to watch the children is over in Campo San Polo is the ice skating rink. They, they make a, a small little, they fill in a small area of this big campo and all the kids come and put on these little skates and, mm. and play. And it's sort of, you ice know. Ice skating in Venice. Ice skating in oh, Venice. Isn't it. that not funny? Not, not on the Grand Canal or anything. No. <laughs> but they make this nice little rink. And the other thing that we do during this period is eat a lot of fritelle. These fried donut balls covered in sugar, the entire city has that oh, perfume of this. These are kind of like
0: beautiful donut holes.
1: They're like beautiful donut holes yeah. and slightly larger. Some <laughs> have raisins, some have a little liqueur in them. Wow, they're oh. addictive. I have to, you know, one a day. (laughs) And what
0: what would be the the drink of choice during Carnival? Uh,
1: Well, I I think the drink of choice in Venice, I know that we talk a lot about the spritz, Uh uh, but I lean more towards the Prosecco, a nice glass of bubbly white wine. That's sort of the
0: Italian champagne.
1: It is, and it comes from the Veneto region, so it's specifically a good place to have that in Venice, and it goes down nicely with a fritelle.
0: Now Italy has had a struggle with the economic crisis in recent years has that really had an impact on on how uh, royally the carnival festivities yes, are, are Absolutely put out? absolutely how so?
1: Um, well like like you've said I've been there 15 years this summer and in years past there's been big concerts in San Marco and they often had fireworks Things like that, we did have them for New well, Year's, but a we've had to cut bit... back on some of that. Yeah, when the government
0: says we don't have money for this school or, or that park or this public transportation service anymore, and then they spend a lot of money on fireworks, people might go, Hey, yeah. this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Stacey Gaboni, and we're talking about Carnival in Venice. Stacey, let's just uh, wrap up this conversation mm-hmm. with your favorite Carnival memory uh, in the last 10 or 15 years in Venice that you're comfortable talking about in public.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Okay.
0: <laughs> Given Venice's right, reputation. Right, exactly. I, I
1: think this is rather appropriate. My favorite one um, was really in the early days. I think it was 2002 or 3 I'm not really sure. An artist friend of mine invited me to go to an erotic poetry reading. An I, erotic I, I, poetry I, reading. Nice. I, I dabble in hmm. wordsmithing. Uh-huh. And uh, I thought it was just a small get-together during carnival in a private home. No, it was the festival of Giorgio Baffo, the famous erotic poet from like the 17th century, in Campo San Maurizio, every year during Carnival, people get up on stage in full attire and read in Venetian dialect their erotic poetry.
0: Absolutely wonderful. I didn't know that was a genre of Venetian poetry.
1: Quite a character, this Giorgio Baffo. You can check him out online as well. Um, this event goes, it's been going on for a very long time in different forms, but in contemporary times, it was probably... always during Carnival. And I got up on stage, this American chick from Jersey, (laughs) read my poem in English, (laughs) and was presented with a small wooden hand-painted penis pin as a gift for my participation.
0: What can I say? Well there you go Carnival you I'm sure you'll have surprises when you have the uh, the gumption to get in there and uh, and,
1: and participate and, the, the,
0: and if you happen to be in Venice during carnival what happens at carnival stays in Venice in carnival. stays in carnival in <laughs> Venice Stacey Gavoni thank you for sharing your favorite memory of carnival in Venice
1: <laughs> Grazie, Rick
0: Let's set our sights a little north and bring in German tour guide Fabian Ruger now to look at Carnival in the Rhine River Valley of Germany. Fabian, it's good to have you here. Thanks for having me. Tell me, just to get me straight on this, we have Easter and we have Lent, which is a time of fasting and so on leading up to Easter, and then there's Mardi Gras that we all know about from New Orleans and so on, Mm -hmm. and Carnival. Give me a whole thumbnail uh, context. What is all this stuff? So, it
2: all has Christian origins. Um, some
0: say it's even older, but
2: what we know for facts is, in 600 AD, Pope Gregory decrees that there's 40 days of fasting before Easter. And when you start the fasting period, you have to get rid of all the food that might perish in the following 40 days. Ah, so you need to the eat that food. Around the same time, there is some sort of taxation as well, where the you know the landlords or the feudal lords get payment in food from their farmers so the whole thing turns into some sort of um party the night before the fasting period begins and that is the birth moment of carnival which as a word probably derives from carnevale which means farewell to meat because that's when
0: the fasting period begins carnival culminates in some big feast 40 days before easter
2: Well, of course, what happens is that what is supposed to be just one day very quickly turns into a whole week of partying because it begins to mix with other customs that already existed. And so very quickly you have a whole season before fasting in which the Catholic Church agrees should be sort of a simulation of hell because the fasting period is your cleansing period. So you switch back to heaven. In other words... What the Catholic Church allows you here is to see what anarchy and chaos and hell will be like before you become a good person again through your fasting.
0: Now, this must have served almost a purpose in the Middle Ages as a safety valve, a way for people to vent, people to put a a mask on their face, and anything goes.
2: Indeed. And that's, of course, if you will, simulated anarchy so that real anarchy
0: will not happen. We know Carnival in Venice. It's famous because they have those beautiful masks. And of course, that was when people could hook up with people of different social classes and economic classes and all sorts of stuff could go on because, hey, I'm wearing a mask and this is before Lent. What is it like in Germany? Why is it a big deal in Germany? One thing that makes carnival
2: very interesting, I think, in Germany is, um, first of all, there is still the the division of faith because in the Protestant regions in Germany, let's face it, I can say this as a Protestant, carnival in Protestant regions is boring or non-existent (laughs) because only the Catholics know how to do it. Germany is split in the middle, basically. The south, Bavaria, and so on would be more Catholic. Yes, the the Catholic regions west of the Rhine and in the south, they would have the, the proper carnival. And, of course, that's because they have these historic traditions. Now, with the abolition of fasting by Protestantism, there is no reason anymore for carnival. Therefore, the Protestant regions, by their very definition, don't really need Carnival. And that's why these traditions were weakened over the centuries in the Protestant
0: regions. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Fabian Ruger has taken us deep into the origins of Carnival and Mardi Gras in the Rhineland of Germany. You mentioned it becomes a season, not just a party before Lent, but actually a season. Uh, How does that relate to Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras? One of the links to Fat Tuesday,
2: Mardi Gras, is that... Depending on the calendar, it begins earlier in some places and later in others. So what is Mardi Gras? The Tuesday in the Cologne region, for instance, um, usually Carnival begins on Thursday. So it's actually um, sort of a fat Thursday. Thursday But the main week is the one that begins on the Rosenmontag, and everything ends on Ash Wednesday, of course, because that's when the fasting period begins. And this this Ash Wednesday and Rosy Monday and fat whatever Thursdays, this is all in the week before Lent. That's right. The Lent begins basically with Ash Wednesday. Okay, evening. so
0: roughly 47 to 40 days before Easter, you've got this week-long period in Germany mm-hmm. that is carnival and is Cologne the greatest place for carnival or what cities are great? It to has go the to? largest and I think the most historic
2: carnival. Keep in mind that Napoleon as he invades Germany in the 19th century bans carnival. That's interesting because France, of course, is a Catholic country, but Napoleon does not like the idea that there are masked people dancing around in the streets, especially since the carnival parades make a lot of fun of the French troops. Oh, my goodness. Which is why by the (laughs) 1820s, carnival has been banned for about eight years Carnival gets this rebirth by the Prussians, who are Protestant. They now own the city of Cologne, but they want to revitalize the spirit of Carnival and therefore gain some sort of uh, allegiance to Prussia and the local population. I see you can win the heart and soul
0: of the populace by giving them giving subsidized them bread or excuse to party. The excuse to party to give them the Carnival back. Now, uh, if, I, if I'm going to Cologne, let's say, for Carnival, right. yeah. as a tourist, as, a, as an American who doesn't really have connections there and friends there, how can I enjoy it, and what will I see? Well, you should arrive obviously just you know the weekend just before,
2: and then especially on Rose Monday, the Rosenmontag, there are the main parades on the streets of Cologne. The cars are being hauled around. Usually, they have huge political cartoons or caricatures of figures, and there are the fools and carnival. You always elect the Prince of Fools, and. The parades they'll throw sweets to the children in the streets and so I grew up as a child always going to these Rose Monday parades so every Rose little bit the parade and, Rose, and Mond- the... Rose Monday is the main main then, parade day and what else will happen later uh, on in the week of course there's lots of partying going on as a child of course you're not allowed to go to parties that go into the after hours but you know as
0: soon as you can you will okay it's a good and you're, you're a full grown adult and you can party hardy what are you gonna wear what would you do if you were going to carnival this year to have a time that you'll never forget. Rule number one is you cannot go without a costume of
2: sorts. You have to dress up. It doesn't matter as what, almost, but you have to somehow be dressed up and be visibly a fool of sorts. Now of course you can't dress up as Batman, that's foolish enough, you know, or as Superman. Um, I remember a couple of friends of mine went as the, uh, the American band KISS, all in makeup and everything, and they were one of the most admired costumed guys in the streets and everybody loved it. Carnival is, it's fairly crazy because if you get into the city of Cologne, if you can get in on that day, it will be absolutely packed. Everybody will be in costume. Even the odd policemen patrolling the streets mm-hmm. will have something, something on that basically tries to make it look like a costume, even though he's still wearing a uniform. And <laughs> so is even when own, he's on service, service, on duty, they will the try to will do something out. to show they're also oh, part of Carnival. Great. Uh, and, uh, of course, legally speaking even, formally, the Prince of Fools is the mayor of Cologne in this Carnival period. And, of course, it all ends on Ash Wednesday when the Prince of Fools has to hand the reins back to the ruling authorities. There's a
0: part of Carnival called Women's Day, is that right? That's right, the Weiberfastnacht.
2: Basically, that means women's Mardi Gras, literally. That's the feast night of women. And it is tradition on Weiber Fastnacht that a woman will take a scissor, walk around on the streets, and any man who walks by, who wears a tie, can get his tie cut. And in return, you have to give him a kiss on the cheek. Men are prepared for that. They take out the worst ties on Weiber onto the streets and then some bring several, if they want to, you know, get several kisses, of course. Uh, <laughs> bring and, your nice. you knives. Know, that's, uh, that's all part of the fun of Carnival.
0: And if you're not going to deal with the crowds in Cologne, but you want to celebrate Carnival, will you find this in many places in Germany?
2: All along the Rhine River, pretty much, you will mm. find Carnival. All the way even down to Basel, which uh, in ah. Switzerland, which is, of course, interesting because it's a Protestant city, and it's one of the few big Protestant cities in Europe that has maintained a Carnival tradition. Hmm. Frankfurt would have carnival? Uh, Frankfurt would have carnival. Koblenz. Mainz, Mainz, Koblenz, they all would have carnival. But Cologne is definitely the one, where I think.
0: But of course, I'm a local patriot. Fabian Ruger, thank you so much for a little insight in how Germany parties hardy before the Lenten season leading up to Easter. Do you say happy carnival, or what do you say? Depending, it's very important which greeting you use. You have to use the
2: right carnival greeting. In Cologne, you say Kölle alaaf.
0: And what does that mean?
2: That means, you know, remember the time from French occupation, etc. It means cologne above all. Cologne above all.
0: And how do I say that again? Curle Danke Dankeschön, Fabian Ruger. Meet the producer and the grand prize winner of a hit Norwegian reality TV show that bridges what you might call the generation gap between the old world and the new. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves.
4: Mina Soraya. We come from Suriname, and I rise with Rick Steves. I'm Soraya from Suriname, and that was Surinamese for I Travel with Rick Steves. Mina Soraya, and I rise with Rick Steves.
0: There's a reality TV show in Norway these days that's bridging the gap between Americans whose ancestors left the old country and today's Norway. Alt for Norge, or All for Norway, shows Norwegians what happens when their distant American cousins get introduced to the homeland for the first time while searching for their roots. Tor Orald is executive producer of Alt for Norga, and he joins us from the NRK studios in Oslo. And on the phone, we have one of the winning contestants, Beth Butala from Bloomington in Minnesota. Tor and Beth, tuzentak for joining us. Oh, you're welcome.
4: Thank you for having us.
0: You bet. Hey, Tor, tell us about the reality shows in general in Norway. Uh, they're really popular in the United States. What's the scene like in Norway?
6: Well, in Norway, the scene is pretty much the same as in, in the U.S. We've got, like, the Survivor show, we got Idol, and all those sort of shows.
0: Are some of them kind of knockoffs of American shows? You just take the formula in Europe and you adapt it for Norway?
6: Yeah, they're, they're the same, like, exactly the same as they are in the U.S.
0: But your show? All for Norway. That's that's a unique concept. Can you kind of um, give us the lay of the land? What is this show?
6: Well, the setup is that we take 12 Norwegian Americans that have never been to Norway before, and we take them into Norway, let them compete in being the best in adapting to Norwegian everyday life. Uh, there's no, like, voting or anything. They have to compete in, like, whatever crazy thing we come up with, from ski jumping to eating sheep heads or swearing. And then the person that is each week least adaptable to the Norwegian culture is sent home to the U.S. And in the end, we are stuck with one winner who wins a reunion with their long-lost Norwegian relatives. Wow. How long has this show been going on? We just finished uh, the sixth season yesterday, so we're now starting preparing for season seven.
0: Now, Beth, Beth from Minnesota, You're, you're not only a contestant, you were a big champion. Tell us about uh, some of these challenges that Tor was talking about, and and, uh, what were you so good at?
4: I'm not sure if I was really that good at them, (laughs) but I did seem to get pretty lucky, and I had a lot of fun. We got to dress up as animals and run through the Norwegian woods tasting aquavit, all while being shot at by our fellow contestants with paintball guns. We threw Fiskeballers into each other's mouths and had to compete in a relay race. Oh, my gosh. We did all kinds of crazy things. Had to learn Norwegian phrases while we were on a ferry and had to repeat them back, you know, pronouncing everything correctly. So <laughs> we really learned a lot about all the different types of um Norwegian
0: daily life. It sounds like sort of Norwegian cultural boot camp. Just for our listeners to know, akavit is like the fire water, right? And you don't sip it, you throw it down. So you're running through the forest dressed up like an animal while Norwegians are shooting paintballs at you, drinking akavit with your fellow contestants. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Fiskeballer. when I was a little kid, that was what my grandma would always serve me, and that was fish balls. They say, uh, you know, Norwegian food is generally white, and uh, a lot of traditions. Now, you're from Minnesota, how did the culture that you learned about compare with the culture you understood being raised in America? Was it similar? Uh, what was your what was your aha moment going back to actually see Norway rather than hearing about it through your relatives in Minnesota?
4: Yeah, it was so different. I think growing up, I thought of Norway and kind of Norwegian culture as things that, like my grandma, would sit in the basement of her church and talk about while eating lefse and wearing a Norwegian sweater. So it seems very old-fashioned to me, and that makes sense because I think a lot of the traditions that, you know, our relatives took over are from, you know, the 1850s, and that's kind of what we stuck with. But now Norway is such a different place to me, and it's so vibrant and so progressive and has so much going on. So my impression of it has completely changed, and I went from kind of really not seeing how that would really impact my life so much to now having it be a huge part of my life and, you know, what I spend my day-to-day thinking about and and doing.
0: You know, Beth, that's so interesting because so many of us Americans have, uh, we have grandparents that came from the old country. And in a sense, our understanding of our heritage is sort of stuck in a time warp from people who left the old country two or three generations ago. And clearly, it's not your grandma's Norway
4: anymore, is it? Yeah, exactly. There were so many things that are, that are so modern and even perhaps more modern than what we have in America. For example, on Fridays, we learned that, you know, it's very common for on Fridays for Norwegians to have taco Fridays or to eat frozen pizzas on Fridays. And we were like, what? We couldn't believe that. Yeah, what
0: about the uh, lefse? And what about the, uh, uh, what are the, what's the, what's the horrible food that people eat? The, the rotten fish? Lutefisk? Lutefisk, yeah. They eat more tacos than lutefisk.
4: Yeah, I think so. I mean, sure <laughs> can speak more to it, but we did also get to experience a lot of the traditional food, and there are people there who are, you know, still really, it's really important to them, and I think that's another part of the show is just learning about how, you know, tradition is still so important, and yeah. I think sometimes in our kind of American lives and American culture, we kind of let that slide a little mm-hmm. bit and I'm not sure if we always see like the importance of that.
0: That's one thing I'm inspired by when I do travel in other countries is the importance they put on their heritage and teaching the younger generation the values of the older generation and so they're sure they know from where they came
2: som idag har have over million Men lever samtidig i den tro att Norge stort sett handlar om lutefisk, lefse och lokalkjände isbjörnar. De har helt miste kontakten med sin norska familje och anar ingenting om det moderna
0: Norge.
1: I know it's like next to Sweden and Finland, right? I don't know. I don't know where it is. Geography is not my Time.
0: Right now, on Travel with Rick Steves, we're talking about the hit reality TV show that everybody's watching in Norway these days. It's called Alt for Norga, or in English, All for Norway. I'm joined by the show's executive producer in Oslo, that's Tor Orald, and Beth Butala, who is an all-American girl from Minnesota who is a winning contestant on the show. Hey, Tor, when you're watching an episode, and I got to watch um, a part of an episode, I was really struck by the great emotions that there are with your contestants when they get to meet their family, and also how Ellis Island is a big part of the show.
6: Yeah, season one, the show was very much a fish-out-of-water concept where we took people who had no idea about Norway and put them in weird situations they've never encountered skiing or whatever, uh, experiencing things they've never had. We learned after seasons of doing this that people actually started to know a lot more when they came over. People we casted had heard about the show, had seen episodes and we had to put more emphasis on the emotional aspect of the show rather than the humorous aspect. It's still a lot of humor. It's a very good-natured show, but we started tapping more into the genealogy and the heritage part mm-hmm. and giving the contestants more information. We did a lot more genealogy research on the contestants' families and found out stuff and stories that were Really mind-blowing, actually. I think in the season that you mentioned from Ellis Island, we actually found out that one of the contestants' grandmother was convicted murder in Norway. And we had a lot of really, really strong stories to tell that were totally unknown for our Mm. contestants.
0: To discover that must have just overwhelmed them with emotion.
6: Yeah, a lot of emotion. And people are, I think Beth can say this as well, is... It's like a door opening to a whole new world, learning and like filling a gap. That's what people say.
0: When I was at Ellis Island tour, I I don't think of myself as really emotional about, you know, seeing my name, my family name on a gravestone or on a ship registry. But I went to Ellis Island and they had a new computer program and you could actually type in your family name and look at it. And there I found a photograph of the ship registry with my grandfather's name on it and his buddy and where they came from and where they were heading and how many dollars he had in his pocket. And to see his name and to know that he came to the New World with 20 bucks and his buddy and they're heading for Duluth a hundred years ago, I just, it overwhelmed me with emotion that I didn't even know was hiding inside of me. Beth, when you sort of uncovered your relatives, what was it like?
4: I think Torin described it really well. Probably the most memorable part was getting to... On a rock on the family farm that my great great grandfather had come from and, and left in Norway and never went back to. And you know, you're kind of reading the story of somebody's life, and it makes you kind of think about your own story and your own life, and you just feel connected to a family and a line of people um, that's so much bigger than just yourself. The show is, I mean, it is this great adventure, but it's also almost this kind of rite of passage. Because there's so much time for self discovery and and growth, and that's a process that definitely happens and I think has really been happening to me ever since I went to Norway.
0: So, did you know your relatives beforehand?
4: No, I knew, you know, I knew kind of where they were from. I knew that they were there, but I had no, really no contact with them. And I really, to be honest, I'm embarrassed to say this, but it wasn't even something that I realized was important to me until now I have this connection and, and it is such an important part of my life.
0: So, with the help of Tor and, and the show, all for Norway, you got to know your relatives. What what was that like? And and have you been in touch with them since?
4: Yeah, I remember being extremely excited but extremely nervous to meet them, because something I had learned about Norwegians through this process is that, you know, they're not always necessarily the most talkative, the most outgoing. And I was sort of like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to embarrass them, and you know, I, I didn't know what they would think of me. But it was, I mean, it was just one of the best days of my life. We got to have a a family reunion, a big picnic together, and sit down and share stories. And I've been back to visit them three times since. You know, with the Internet and social media, I talk to many of them, you know, for sure every week, some almost daily.
0: Wow, so this really opened up a whole new dimension of your life that you didn't even realize was waiting to be opened up.
4: Yeah, it really did. I mean, between talking to family and even just now, I'm so interested in, you know, like the politics in Norway, and the news, you know. I watch other reality TV shows. I was watching the Norwegian Dancing with the Stars last night. Yeah, I just feel like my whole world really has been opened up thanks to Alt for Norway and um, all the amazing people that put their heart into it.
0: Beth Butala was a winning contestant on the Discovery Norway TV show, Alt for Norga. She's on the line with us from her home in Bloomington, Minnesota. And joining us on Travel with Rick Steves from studios in Oslo is the show's executive producer, Tor Orell. Hey, Tor, when you think when you listen to Beth and, and hear how your reality show is more than just a comedic stunt, but it is actually opening a door to American Norwegians, to a, a rich heritage, uh, what are your thoughts?
6: It actually, it's kind of humbling. As we went from, like I talked about, the fish out of water, more humorous stuff, to... Actually, tapping into the genealogy and heritage part more, we discovered that this was really, really important. And it's kind of surprising for us Norwegians because we live in our heritage every day. It, we take it for granted, so not that interested. And I actually think that is a loss for us as Norwegians because we are actually less interested in our ancestry than, than the Norwegian Americans that come and, and visit our country. And that's, I think, that's a loss for us Norwegians because we just take it for granted. Because grandma's always there. We know the family farm. We're it's so easily accessible that we actually forget to, huh. to um, appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, it's
0: very interesting because I was focused on Beth's uh, Eureka moments, but your show is designed not for Americans but for Norwegians. And maybe an unintended consequence of the show is to. Let Norwegians remember how exciting their heritage is and how important it is to be mindful of that.
6: Genealogy has actually now become a lot more popular. We've had this show and also, I think, a show that So Who Do You Think You Are? We also have a Norwegian Mm -hmm. version. And it's starting to become more and more popular in Norway to think in that way. Uh, And I think our show actually has contributed to that. but. We're surprised at how important it is for Norwegian-Americans to actually find out about their heritage.
0: This is a reality show with with more than entertainment as an agenda.
6: Yeah, it is. We We tell important stories, and it actually matters for the contestants. It matters a lot, and it doesn't matter because there's a lot of money at stake or fame at stake. It matters because it's a personal development for the people who come here. And to be honest, Norwegians love to be bragged at, so having foreigners, you know, American people coming here to Norway and, <laughs> and making it, like, feeling so moved and touched by it that, you know, touches our hearts and, and makes it very popular. I mean, everybody likes to be bragged about. So. so
0: interesting. Tor, thank you so much. And I just want to close by Beth very quickly. Tell me three things. What was the grand prize that you won? When you go back to Norway, what is your favorite food that you look forward to eating? And when are you returning?
4: Um, So the grand prize is that we get to meet all our living relatives and have this amazing family reunion, and there is also a cash prize that comes along with it. My favorite food when I go back, I don't know if this is a food, but this is a meal, the Norwegian breakfasts, I swear, are the best breakfasts in the world, and I really look forward to the big um, Norwegian breakfast kind of buffet. And right now, I'm actually for sure going back this summer, and I'm trying to see if I can sneak in another trip, maybe.
0: <laughs> wow. And I got to ask you, what is it about the breakfast that is, is so good? Because my memory of Norwegian breakfasts is all sorts of amazing desserts.
4: You know, it's, it's like everything. It's this huge buffet, and we have all these choices of meats and fish and, you know, different fruits and goat it's cheese. just like everything you could have wanted.
0: Oh, the Ye toast, goat cheese.
4: Yes, exactly. All right.
0: And waffles. Oh. Well, you got to get back there in a hurry, it sounds like. Hey, Tor Oreld, thank you so much for joining us and best wishes for uh, Alt for Norga. And Beth, beautiful. Thank you very much. Congratulations, Beth, on uh, reminding Norwegians what a beautiful heritage they have and possibly inspiring a lot of Americans, whether they're Norwegians or not, to find out from where they came. Thanks a lot for joining us.
4: Thank you so much for having thank me. Thank you.
6: believe
2: that Norway is the most beautiful country I've
4: ever seen. You're now
6: eating Rams testicles. Wait, say that again
0: You know there really is something powerful about returning to the place where it all began. For me It's the Copenhagen train station in the 1960s. While traveling in Europe for the first time as a kid with my parents, that's where I fell in love with Europe and with travel. Last time I was back there, I spotted a couple of young backpackers with their rail passes and rucksacks, just like me when I was old enough to explore Europe on my own. Seeing them stirred up those young emotions when the possibilities for exploring the world seemed endless so many travel adventures awaited me. In today's digital age, I pulled out my recorder and made this audio snapshot as the backpackers passed in front of me on the way to catch their train. I'm Rick Steves, and uh, what are these guys here? Uh. (laughs) Oh. That was me in 1973 on my first year rail trip. But, you know, when I stand here in the Copenhagen train station it's very nostalgic because I was here as a little kid back when my passport was literally on my mom's passport. We were going in 69. I was 14 years old from the piano factories in Germany up to the relatives in Norway and I, we, we were in this very spot right here in the Copenhagen train station and I just love train stations. They're so evocative. They have all sorts of exciting people and places and opportunity and travel. And I, I saw kids a couple years older than me with rucksacks and euro passes and no parents in sight. And it occurred to me, you know, I don't need my mom and dad for this kind of fun. Europe is my playground and it's recess. I vowed then to go back to Europe every year for the rest of my life I have. And uh, it's happy travels. This is Rick Steves reporting from the Copenhagen train station. And I got to catch a train to Kalmar in Sweden, which is right this way. Track number five. It's leaving in about... Oh, it's leaving in about five minutes. Uh, Here you see Kalmar, Spore 5, and uh, i got to head down here. So I'll talk to you later from Sweden. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick
3: Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. We get technical help from Jonathan Lee, website support from Andrew Wakeling, and special thanks for studio help this week to our colleagues at NRK in Oslo. You can find guest information, search the show archives, and listen again on demand. Take a look each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com.
0: Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Scandinavia, the Baltics, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next Nordic adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.